energy. Welcome to the Activated Authors Podcast, a show where we distill the core principles of what it takes to become a happy, healthy, and productive author, no matter what stage of the journey you're at. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox. I'm an international best-selling author, as well as an author coach, speaker, and creative entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of all things productivity, psychology, and human behavior. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Without further ado, let's dive in. What is up, Activators? And welcome to another episode of the Activated Authors Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the amazing Mark Leslie Lefebvre. Mark has published more than 25 books under the name Mark Leslie that include thrillers and fiction, paranormal nonfiction, uh, paranormal nonfiction and anthologies. Under his full name, he writes books to help authors navigate publishing, which includes the seven P's of publishing success, an author's guide to working with libraries and bookstores, and wide for the win. His industry experience includes president of the Canadian Booksellers Association, board member of BookNet Canada, director of author relations and self-publishing for Rakuten Kobo, Director of Business Development for Draft Digital and Professional Advisor for Sheridan College's Creative Writing and Publishing Honours Program. And now he joins us here. Hello, Mark. How's it going? Hey, Daniel. Man, that guy sounds old. There's there's a lot in that to unpack. Probably too much to cover in, in the short time we have. Um, but it's not actually... I, I definitely want to dive into some of that stuff. But where I want to start today is I do follow you on Instagram. I do see a lot of your your quotes, dad's jokes and your bad jokes that you put on there. And I absolutely love them. So I was wondering, do you have a current go to joke that you give to people when people ask you to be funny? No, I don't. I'm horrible at that. I uh, I just kind of come up with stuff on the spot. Uh, so it usually has to be. A, yeah, I don't have a, a certain well that I go into. I usually say, uh, do you know what burns my ass? Flames about this high, five feet high. <laughs> nice. Maybe, maybe three and a half feet high. Yeah, that works. We'll take that one. Um, but yeah, give my give my listeners, I know obviously just a little bio, but give my listeners a little bit of your journey from sort of where you got started into writing and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I, I'd always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a kid. I, I love telling stories. The stories I told were with little Fisher Price figures. Uh, I just loved them. And I kept these continuing adventures, like serialized tales in my head. So I didn't just play... I had a little story I wanted to tell with my figures. And then, you know, I got called for dinner and I would be like to be continued next season or next episode or, or in, in next month's comic. Cause I, I was a voracious comic book reader, Spider-Man mostly. Nice. And, uh, and I love that, that style. And then when I got a little bit older, I discovered my mom's Underwood typewriter and, and that was it match made in heaven. <laughs> Spent all my time hammering like two finger, two finger keys um and then i think i got my first rejection uh, of a horror story i sent into cbc radio so it's kind of like bbc mm -hmm. uh sort of a classier higher end npr for those in the u.s and um they got my first rejection when i sent them a horror story for their literary contest Man. and um and it wasn't until 1992 that i got my first story published after you know dozens and dozens of rejections in the traditional uh sphere I continued writing. I continued submitting stories. I self-published my first book in 20, uh, 2004, which was a collection of mostly previously published horror stories in different magazines. And I, and I was self-publishing, you know, 10 years before all the cool kids started doing it. And, um, and yeah, I've never looked back. Uh, my first traditional deal, I think, was in 2006. And, uh, and I've done both traditional publishing and self-publishing. And so, in 92, the year my first story was published was also the year I started working in the book industry as a bookseller because I thought, well, I'm not really qualified to do anything with this English degree. I'm, you know, I, I thought I would go into teacher's college, but I wasn't smart enough to get in because mm -hmm. it was very competitive back then. 
And I thought, well, okay, bookstores. I like, I like rating. I love rating. I've always have. Why don't I, why don't I work for, you know, minimum wage and do something I really love while I reserve some of my time for, you know, getting up early and writing, which is my true passion. And so I've been really lucky in that I got, I've gotten to do both. I've had the parallel careers of book industry guy and, uh, and writer. And, and that's really helped me because never feels like I'm working, even though I probably work all the time. Mm, which that's another thing that was fine that we'll definitely go into at some point but but take us back to that first rejection because you know that first rejection is obviously make or break for a lot of people because so many people put a lot of weight on the first publisher that they send something to and when it comes back they've been rejected a lot of people take that as an indication that their writing just isn't there and that's just there's this assumption that you know you're born a writer or you're not and so what was it for you in that process that, that kept you moving forward after that initial rejection you know what? I'd already been rejected uh, dozens of times in my personal life by then. So I was used to it. Like I, I had already developed a thick skin. I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I never, I had been reading Writer's Digest magazine. And I, I grew up in, in mid-northern Ontario in Canada. And I mean, the nearest bookstore was an hour drive away. This was kind of like back in the days, our town didn't even have a photocopier in it. So even the manuscript process itself, actually couldn't just make a photocopy of the manuscript to mail in. I had to retype every time I sent it off. Oh, so wow. Yeah. I was determined uh, to do this. Uh, and when I was 14, I wrote a novel and I would call it this epic fantasy novel. There's 30,000 words, which I thought was gigantic. <laughs> Pretty but epic I spent for the whole summer. Yeah. I spent the whole summer, um, you know, being vitamin D deficient while, you know, my friends and my cousins and stuff were they're splashed around in the pool right outside. And I'm inside <laughs> hammering away on this, this novel, because that's all I wanted to do is write all I wanted to do. So, so the idea of being rejected was just, no, no, no. Okay, great. Obviously nothing gets, nothing gets accepted immediately. I kind of understood that about, about the business. Uh, I remember my mom even saying we were watching a television show. And there'd be a writer and it'd always be this poor writer, you know, buying cans of spam and, 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 and other, you know, cheap. He's <laughs> like, yeah, if, if you, if you want to be a writer, Mark, you better get a good job because you're not going to make any writing. Ignore so I already, already, <laughs> I already grew up with the expectation that it was not going to be easy. So that first rejection was just par for the course for me. And I just kind of, I'm stubborn. I will just keep going. Uh, and fortunately, that's uh, that's helped me because it took a long time to uh, to get to a point where I was making more than you know five dollars or twenty dollars for a short story sale, and then sort of working my way up through the ranks, which was the was the going wisdom back in the day before self publishing was actually a viable thing. Yeah, I think I kind of caught onto the tail end of some of what is the more traditional um, publishing model because I, I was a copy editor and a proofreader for nonfiction academic journals around twenty. 13 2014 and even in that point you know lots of things were changing from traditional sort of a handwritten manuscript proofing into sort of like digital methods everything like the the way that proofreaders and editing um industries were composed was was changing drastically to meet with a to meet with a new digital model and so yeah i can imagine those days were were vastly different but i mean in terms of working through the ranks of bookseller obviously you did very very well to get yourself up to some high positions that you know you still kind of um in so what was what was that journey like and how was that how has working in the industry really helped with your writing and sort of the changes that have come over the last couple of decades? Oh, yeah. That, I mean, I've been really lucky. I was working three or four part-time jobs. I was a security guard. I worked as a theater tech at uh, the University Theater Company. 
Um, and, uh, and then, you know, because as many part-time jobs as I could get, I ended up taking a part-time uh, seasonal help uh, bookstore on Spark Street in Ottawa. And it was meant to just be a three-month position, you know, from September through December. But the manager liked me and then a full-time position came up and I was able to stay. And, and that was it for me. I think, I think one of the things I've loved about the book industry is it really helped me understand <clears throat> the business of books because I was always a passionate reader, a big book nerd. Going to the library, going to the bookstore was my favorite thing. I loved books. I had this dream, the romantic dream of being a writer, but working in a bookstore helped me understand that a book is just a commodity. Not, and, and it's not just a commodity because yeah. people who work in the industry are very passionate about it. But you have to remember that every single book on the shelf is there for a reason because there's an expectation that these tenants are going to pay their rent by selling and turning three times a year. And so that really helped me nail down the understanding of why manuscripts are rejected, why books sell or don't sell. And, and this is before online book selling, of course. Um, and, and so that as the industry changed and we looked at, you know, having a really good sales page on Amazon, et cetera, it's the same principles, right? It's the, the right book in the right reader's hands at the right time. And so all of those elements related to this story uh, or information, if it's nonfiction or, or help or support or whatever, is meant to solve a problem. The problem is what, what's the book that I should read next? Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's always been and continues to be so insightful. Uh, I, I, I feel almost like uh, I'm cheating as a writer because I have these <laughs> insights into the industry. Uh, on the flip side, I've, I've, done, I've done as much as I can or may, maybe not enough, but I feel like I do a lot to try to help educate other writers on the business of writing and publishing using my uh, bookstore and, and book industry experience. And it uh, feels like um, that's work that I am also passionate about. Because I don't want to destroy their dreams, but I want them to have real, realistic expectations. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I think I think it's been a real benefit to me, and I try to leverage that benefit to help other people too. Yeah, and it's a it's a real interesting insight as well, just to see because obviously we benefit from being in particularly sort of knowing much more about the self publishing industry and seeing like where books are now. Um, but even as recent as a couple of years ago, well, just before uh, the COVID pandemic hit, I gave a guest lecture at my local university about self publishing. And to go to a room of 18, 19 year olds who are studying English literature and kind of looking at these avenues and still the actual knowledge of what self-publishing is just hasn't seemed to have permeated into the broader consciousness. So is that is that something that you see sort of changing over the next few years or is that something that you think is just a barrier at this point? It's a long like writing. It's a long, slow uphill battle. And it, it is so true. I mean, most people, I mean, you and I are in, engaged in the India, um, the, uh, the, the indie communities, and, mm -hmm. and there are silos within the indie communities itself. But we've got to remember that we're just such a small, tiny percent of people who understand the possibilities that happen uh, exist with digital. Most people who read still read print books. Therefore, most people who think about being a writer think about the print book industry and the traditional models. Mm. Self-publishing is still seen uh, as a, oh, I can't do it properly. Therefore, I self-publish. And, and there's such a, I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to, to do this Stark Reflections on Writing and Publishing podcast to remind people that there's so much more about the industry 
that's outside of the little silos that we exist in. There's so many different perspectives. There's so many different opportunities and challenges. And yeah, it's, it's, there's so, so far to go. So even, even the, the I, I speak at a, a number of uh, college and universities, usually they bring me in to do a one hour guest lecture about self-publishing, whereas the whole rest of the program is the traditional method, yeah. and only the traditional method. And it's mm -hmm. like this afterthought. And in the hour I usually have, it's a fire hose. I try to slam as much Same. information into yep. their brains as possible to open up their minds and eyes to the possibilities. I don't want them to uh, to think of traditional publishing as, as wrong or a bad choice or whatever, because mm -hmm. there are opportunities within trad publishing that are optimum depending on your goals. But um, a, lot of, a lot of academics in particular are closed-minded. Even as, a, as an advisor at Sheridan College, I've talked to students who've gone through the program. So we developed the program. I was there offering the, hey, wait, let's let's talk about digital publishing. Let's talk about self-publishing. It's not, it's not like a, a leftover thing that you think about only if you can't publish properly. Hmm. And even the students who went through the program said the one thing, one of the things I wish we had was more self-publishing because most of the you can't teach at at the at the college university level without having a, a master's. And most people who have their master's kind of took the academic traditional yeah. route and so their 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 experience related to uh self-publishing is minimal the only faculty member i know in existence in the world and i'm sure there's more but kevin j anderson who runs the western university uh masters of publishing program is the only academic i know who actually understands the power of self-publishing but that's one yeah. Uh, of the half dozen, uh, you know, universities that I regularly speak at. So, mm -hmm. I mean, a lot more, right? He's, he's got uh, probably a 60% uh, self-publishing, 40% uh, trad publishing split, whereas everything else is 95 trad publishing. And yeah, we'll talk one day about self-publishing. It's a thing that might come one day, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I find it interesting as well, because the I, I think I've given that talk two or three times. And every time I'll start off by saying who here has considered or is aware of their options with self-publishing. And there'll always be one person who's very eager and they immediately latch onto you and you see their face light up because they're like, finally, like someone's validating the thing that I've probably been talking to the other people about. Um, I just, I just really yeah. enjoy that moment. Um, I wanna, <laughs> but hopefully they didn't go with a vanity press and spend $10,000 yeah. buying a marketing package they never needed. And that's the problem yes. because they're, they have uh, billions of dollars and they have better reach than places mm -hmm. like Drafted Digital, for example, that make only make money when authors make money. So yeah. like when you when you charge ten twenty thousand dollars to get your book published, yeah, yeah. I got a book published, but, but big deal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, not big deal, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you're sitting on a lot of margin. You're sitting mm -hmm. on a huge markup. And so you can be the first to reach out to these communities. And therefore, if they know about self-publishing, they probably know about a bad experience as opposed yeah. to what you and I know is possible. Oh, 100%. I, I definitely use showcases of, that's the first thing I do is this person's doing this, this person's doing this. And I give sort of tangible examples of the people that are excelling and doing well. And I'm like, this list is endless, but it's just, it's just knowing those stories and getting into those communities. Um, but I, I, want, I want to jump back a little bit because I'm very, very interested in you know, we've mentioned you do a lot of stuff. Like I know you as the person who is everywhere. And, you know, I, we just happened to be on the same sort of panel call a while back for, I think it was Unstoppable Authors when they did their sort of panel episode. Um, and yeah. I think of like, inevitably we were going to cross at some point, but what, so going back to your first story when that was published, 
what did your writing routine look like then? How was it that you got the words on the page? How did, because you mentioned that that summer where you kind of, yeah. that might have been a little bit before you sat with that, that summer where you were vitamin D deficient because you were working on this book. What was your writing routine then? Okay, so that that short story that I got published was actually, a, uh, we had grade 13, fifth year of high school back then. And it was for a, um, uh, well, my high school was so small. We only had like one English class. There's only like one. It was just English. That was it, as opposed to the six or seven flavors of <laughs> English that you get in a big high school. I had to take a correspondence course. And this was this was like mailing my homework to a, a teacher in Toronto and doing it all on my own. And it was a creative writing class because I really wanted to get a credit in creative writing. And it was a story I originally wrote for that class that I rewrote. So it was handwritten, handwritten again for a first draft and a second draft after the class. And then after I saw a market I could potentially send it to, then I re-handwrote it again. And then I typed it up on a typewriter and mailed it in. The novel um, <clears throat> that I'd written when I was 14 was originally a cartoon strip. And I still have the comic strips oh, you know, modeled after looking at the art of Conan and the Barbarian comics and stuff because it was complete fanfic style. And um, and then I went, I realized as, as my dialogue bubbles were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, I, uh, <laughs> I was like, I really should handwrite this. I the characters want to speak. What's that? The characters want to speak. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it was just like, it was more text than visuals. And, and I, I'm, not a, I'm not an artist, let's be honest. Every once in a while, every 15 or 20 pages, there's a decent piece of art there. But um, yeah, and so the, the the drafting process for me was very much handwritten into typed. Um, so that was the original process for me. Mm -hmm. It always started with uh, handwritten stuff. But then I got to a certain point where I couldn't keep up with my handwriting and I, I was so, uh, I, I couldn't read it. I'd need to bring it to a pharmacist to read because I have no idea what this says. <laughs> so, um, and it was only after high school um, typing classes that I actually learned to type properly. And then I could actually keep up with my brain mm. in terms of what I wanted to share. Yeah, so, I feel that. Yeah. And, and how did you, so in terms of when you did the words, how did you organize that? Were you a morning writer? Were you an evening writer? How long did you sort of spend in sessions or did that kind of fluctuate? It was whenever I had free time. And uh, I think I, I uh, morning and evening, because usually there was less distractions. Now, again, back then there was no internet. Mm -hmm. It was just your friends would phone you, but your friends wouldn't call you after nine o'clock or whatever, or, or you know what I mean? So uh, I would often get up early. Uh, my dad was a fisherman, so I just got adapted to why well, I would be getting up early for Saturday morning cartoons. And that evolved into getting up early. And then now I couldn't type. You got to remember in, in a house like click, 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 waking up my parents <laughs> in the next room. So handwriting was quieter as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, morning for me was was often uh, the key. And, 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 and that has been consistent uh, mm -hmm. to this day that I do my best creative work in the early morning, I do my second best creative work, or maybe even my most creative work when I have a deadline uh, where I have to get the manuscript to an editor. Yes. <laughs> that's the most creative. It doesn't matter what time of day it is, get her done. <laughs> that's, yeah. the, that's the goal. So how do you navigate those times in which you don't have a deadline as much to, to get things done? Is that something that you put your own deadline? Because I was having right. a conversation with an author yesterday and it was a sort of very similar thing of, you know, unless there's a pressing reason, it's difficult yeah. to sit down and do those words. 
I'm a serial procrastinator and I worked a deadline. And so it was one of the reasons I had to start working part-time for draft to digital because when I left Kobo at the end of 2017, I thought, yay, great. I can now write full time. <laughs> that was so funny <laughs> with all the time on my hands. I got nothing done. I didn't actually become proficient until about a year later. I started working 20 hours a week for draft to digital. And that was enough to, uh, that was enough to take up enough of my time that the time I had left was precious and I better use it properly. Mm. Um, so I know that about myself. One of my, my great weaknesses is if, if I have 10 hours, I'll wait till the last hour to get it done. Yeah. So I needed to do things to my schedule. I also uh, started to very specifically, instead of just having a block of time that says writing from six in the morning till eight in the morning, I specifically say working on this specific project. Now I'll do my creative stuff early, early. I get up at 5.30. By the time I feed the dogs, put on the coffee at six o'clock before I'm at my desk and writing. Um, and I can't, uh, if I start doing email, I start doing maintenance, I start yeah. doing reports or any of the analytics that's part of the, the business of writing, I'm, I mess it up. So I have to dig into the fiction first or the editing or whatever that is. I can do editing, I think, later. It's a different brain. So my editor brain, when I'm just, uh, like right now, I'm uh, look, going through a manuscript uh, from an editor, I can do that anytime. Mm -hmm. uh, but the actual creative stuff, even there's a note where she pointed out something. And I'm like, I'm going to have to rewrite this scene. Okay. I'll, I'll get to that later, maybe tomorrow morning, yeah. <laughs> but right now I'll do the analytical stuff and I'll accept the changes and I'll do the tweaks. But now I got to recraft this scene. That's going to take a different mm. brain, a different mark. So. Oh, it's resonating so hard because I'm obviously the, the useful information, the, the number one thing that everyone comes back to when you ask writers how to write, how to get the words done. Most people tend to focus on fiction first. And that's kind of like where we need to be as creators. We need to be producing. We need to keep the vehicle moving. Um, I've certainly found myself in a position in which, because I've been so overtaken by the admin and the sort of business side of work, I'm trying to get back into that, that writing first moment again. And like, how do you often, not often, do you ever slip into that as a thing? And if you do, how do you peel back? Or as you know, are you quite strict with that time and getting things done? Uh, I'm all over the map. I try to be uh, consistent. Again, the deadlines help me stay on task. Uh, the last two books, uh, I mean, uh, the day we're speaking, uh, I've just released a nonfiction book for authors, and that was co-authored. And when I have a co-author, that's also motivation for me to stay on task. Mm. Um, so I finished that book. And then while we were finishing that book, I started on a, a fiction, uh, like a novel that's also co-authored. And that was a very rigid because uh, my partner, Julie Strauss, on that was um, she's very organized project management style. She provided a map of the month of March and nice. said, OK, I'm going to work on this chapter and then I'm going to finish that. And the next day you're going to work on this chapter and you're going to give that to me. And then the next day I'm going to work on this chapter. We'll take Saturday and Sunday off. <laughs> and, 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 we, and we just through the month of March, uh, I, we, I, we alternated it. So uh, I didn't want to take Saturdays off. So I had Saturdays, but Sunday was a holiday. And oh my God, it was such a phenomenal experience to stay on target because it had been a long time since I uh, had written, apart from NaNoWriMo, right? NaNoWriMo gives me the excuse, but it had been the, uh, the only time outside of NaNoWriMo that I could actually write that many words. Now I wasn't writing as many because she wrote half of them, but that was such a phenomenal experience. I think, again, it's the motivation of, I don't want to let Julie down. 
yeah. uh, to get her the next chapter, right? Because she's got this scheduled very, because she had a, a very rigid schedule. I'm doing, you know, because she, she's an editor as well. So I'm editing these days, I'm writing these days. <laughs> and uh, it was great. Also, the time zone difference helped too. I was three hours ahead of her. So even if I was late in getting it to her, <laughs> It was still going to be early for her the next morning. I still could get it to her before she woke up. Yeah. What was your first experience with collaborations? Um, In a sort of round robin. Um, so uh, John Strickland was uh, a boss of mine when I worked at the theater at Carleton University. And I also learned he was a writer and loved horror. So we we would have these wonderful experiences. And, and this was on a word processor. So again, the internet had not didn't exist yet. So I'd go to his house, uh, him and his wife had a beautiful house in, in the suburbs of, of Ottawa. And I'd go there for the afternoon, we put on a giant pot of coffee, he'd go upstairs, and he would start and write a paragraph or two. And I would be outside having coffee sitting on the deck, just dreaming that one day I might own a house like this and be cool like this, because he was an adult. <laughs> and I was, you know, he was probably, I, uh, he seemed ancient to me, although he was probably 28 or 30. <laughs> and, uh, I have a different perspective now at 52. Uh, and I was a student. Uh, and but we had this, you know, we got along really, really well. And he was a, a writing mentor to me and had, had edited some of my um, giving me feedback on my stories. And then he would go and I would sit in front of the, the manuscript for 15, 20 minutes, I would write the next couple of paragraphs while he was outside having a coffee. And we did that all afternoon. And then and then we'd have a wonderful meal with his wife. And, uh, and then talk about the story and then we would go into edits and we wrote a, a number of stories that way. And, and I, it was kind of like a, I loved it. It was just like the best way to spend an afternoon. I'm such a nerd, but um, that was my, my first collaborations. We had planned on doing some books together, but, uh, and we'd even pitched a few books to some agents and gotten a few, actually the one, the one that got back the agent's letter who sent us stuff back had grammar and and and, and spelling errors, and, and snobby us went. I want to work with someone like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, we were so naive. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that was that was your first intro, and obviously that's something that has been a pleasant enough experience that you've you've continued it and you've worked on quite a, a number of collaborations now. Um, and as someone who's been on quite a few collaborations myself, there is an element that of how each collaboration is different even if you're working with the same person what has your yeah. experience been as you've moved through collaborations and how have you been able to ensure that they've remained as successful as possible you know what i think it's picking the right person you've got to you got to know you're going to get along uh, and, and not just get along you can get along as friends but maybe not as collaborators or you maybe don't get along as friends but you get along as collaborators i think every single collaboration we've We've approached, we've brought a different approach to it. Like there's a, recognizing the strengths of your partner and, and what they can do and your strengths. I've, what I find is really helpful. The, the one thing that's been consistent in, in the later collaborations um, after the advent of the internet is a Google spreadsheet where we break it down and understand who's going to write what. If it's nonfiction, it's a lot more disjointed. Oh, I can just write this chapter and this chapter and we'll put it all together once we figure it out. Um, especially, especially the nonfiction ghost story uh, books where, okay, I'm going to go do the research on this and then I'm going to write that chapter and you're going to do research on this and write that chapter. And sometimes you, you, you trade off and go, Hey, I've found some research that you might find helpful. And so the spreadsheet helps us share that information mm -hmm. in, in an organized fashion. Um, I think one of the more unique, uh, collaborations was last year when Joanna Penn and I were working on the relaxed author 
And, and really highly recommend that just to people. Six hours of us <laughs> chatting on Zoom to get the first draft and, and then paying her transcriber to transcribe those conversations. And that's what we used as the first draft. And then Joe went through and, and just re rearranged it. And, and then, and I was like, oh my God, this is the easiest book I've ever <laughs> written. <laughs> Cause it's just talking with a, a good friend. We're just mm -hmm. chatting like we love to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then we got, we got a book out of it. It was just a phenomenal experience. And then it was fun. It was fun recording the audio book, knowing that the, this was just sort of a regurgitation of our conversation, but in a lot more formalized edited structure, Yeah, a lot less us. <laughs> <laughs> and have you ever come across a collaboration or a potential collaboration, which you have said no to, or if one has kind of gone wrong, how have you handled the sort of pull away if that has been the case? Um, I mean, I, I, I say no to, as, as most writers do to the collaboration where the person who doesn't write says, I have an idea for a book and I'll give it to you and you'll write it and we'll make lots of money. No, like I, I just, I, I ignore those. I've gotten mm -hmm. so many of them over the years. Those I don't think of as collaborations. I think of those as these people who have their, uh, you know, the stars in their eyes thinking something different about what writing is. I'm like, dude, I throw away thousands of ideas every year. <laughs> like, it's not a lack of ideas. Trust me. It's a lack of time. Um, I have not yet, I've been lucky that the serious collaborations that I've worked on have been, we've, we figured it out. I have one collaborator now that I'm working on and our styles are, we, we, we get along, we agree, and we're still working on the pitch because this is going to be pitched to a traditional publisher and I'm really passionate about it, but I haven't been able to get in the right mindset mm. to properly pitch this. And this will be a collaboration where the other person is not a writer at all, but they have such an incredible experience that I want to, um, uh, I do want to work with them uh, to get the story out because, uh, so, so it's going to be an interesting, an interesting uh, perspective, whereas normally we decide, do we maintain our own voices? Do we blend it? And I've done both where we blend the voices or we maintain the voices. Um, in this particular case, I'm going to want to maintain our voices, but also come up with his voice, mm -hmm. which I've never done before. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've ghost written to a voice, but not the other person's voice, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So and have you had any... Weird. It's taking longer to figure that out and get the hook in for that one properly. So I've been working on that for about six months now, and I'm not quite there yet. I haven't quite yeah. set a fisherman term. I haven't quite set the hook here. Yeah. And I know that I recommend to people a lot that um, when they're looking at a potential collaboration, just to lay everything on the table before they start and to be prepared to say no, if it doesn't, if it doesn't suit you. Yeah. Well, cause it can be a bad experience, right? And then you can both walk away feeling like bitter and you, you don't want that. Yeah. Uh, the, the community is so small. Um, I have, yeah. Have I said, I, I can't, I don't think I've said no. Because oftentimes it's been people have approached me. I mean, with Joe and I, it just came out of the blue and it was her listeners that suggested. <laughs> Make like, it happen. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's a cool idea. Let's do it. We uh -huh. Neither of us planned for this. Um, but in other cases, it was somebody pitched the idea to me and I went, yeah, that sounds cool. Let's do it. It mm -hmm. just, it, it just, it, it, it kind of feels right. It's kind of like um, when I met my partner, Liz, it was the, uh, the first date. You kind of, you get that click, right? Mm -hmm. you, you kind of know it's going to work or yes. you, you know, there's something there that you want to explore. Mm -hmm. um so that's that's interesting but no i have no advice on how to say no other than 
yeah i like what you said put it put it out on the table and um and let's let's get this clear now so we can just um fish or cut bait yeah hey <laughs> i gotta go back to this <laughs> okay so i need to i need to dig into this better because we keep circling around this and it keeps coming back as a question in my head you are obviously involved in collaborations you're writing your own books you are doing lots of amazing stuff in the indie world you are teaching you are writing non-fiction books and educating authors two questions really number one how do you know what to work on next and number two how the hell do you get so much done because as, as i mentioned earlier you are you are everywhere and not only that but you come across as very approachable and very accessible as opposed to some people who put their faces out there are involved in a lot of stuff, but there's almost like a barrier between them. But you come across as this very like easygoing guy you can talk to on the street. How do you, how do you get involved in so much and how do you do so much with your time? Uh, I don't know. So how do I decide what to work on next? Honestly, I follow my heart. I follow my passion. I follow my gut. I know that's not very, um, that's not very it. academic. It's not very, uh, it's not, it's kind of woo woo. But I kind of just work on the thing that that I am most interested in or most passionate about, uh, combined with deadline. Mm -hmm. In terms of being accessible, I, I, I've been so lucky. The people I work with and have worked with have been so good to me. My mentors, my friends, the writers I hang out with, I've gotten so much from them. And I've learned so much from so many wonderful people, even if they've never met me or know who I am, because, you know, with podcasts and following things online, you can really be inspired by people that you've never met. But um, I've wanted to be able to give as much as I've gotten. And so it's really important to me, really important to, to put it out there. I also, uh, I'm a huge fan of Michael Connolly and uh, the, his Harry Bosch novels. And Harry Bosch has a, um, a phrase that says, everyone counts or nobody counts. And so mm -hmm. when he's solving a murder, it doesn't matter if they're the rich executive or a, you know, a, a homeless person or a prostitute or whatever. If somebody is murdered, they deserve justice and he's going to work at it. And, and, I've and I've adapted that. So when I'm in the, the writing community and somebody approaches me apologetically, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wannabe writer, I'm a beginning writer, I haven't written anything, I'm not worth whatever... I know that there's something valuable that I can learn from them. And I want them to feel like, you know, we're on the same level, even if I'm the person on the stage and they're the person in the audience. That's critical to me. Um, I know what it's like to be rejected and to feel excluded. I want people to feel included. I want people to feel like they can uh, come and talk to the big, scary, six foot three, bald guy who looks like Walter White, right? I, <laughs> I, I know I can look intimidating. So, so I think I, I, I try really, really hard to put myself out there and make myself accessible. I'm also, I'm also, oh my God, I'm so shy and I'm so, I'm an omnivert. I'm in, uh, if you put me on stage, I'll, I'll act, I'll perform the role. I can do every, anything you need me to do. I'll walk into that same room in the crowd I am really awkward and I'd rather just go sit in the corner and hope someone approaches me. If someone approaches me, I'm so grateful and I'll talk to them. <laughs> so it's this weird sort of thing. And so fortunately by being on stage, people saw me or hear my voice on a podcast. They feel like they know me. So they feel comfortable enough to approach me. Uh, and that's great because I wouldn't be comfortable approaching them. Even uh, my good friend, Julie Strauss, uh, we're good friends now. And I had met her a couple times at some romance conferences. And we were both in the, in the back of a room because I was sitting in the back because I'm meek and quiet and whatever. Not quiet. I'm very out there. But that's when I'm on stage. Yeah. 
And she turned to me and said, are you Mark from Kobo? And it was, that was it because I, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I was too shy. But the minute that she broke that ice and came and talked to me, you know, we hit it off. We started chatting and, and it was wonderful. But if it wasn't for her making that first move, I'd just be sitting back there by myself still in the room going, oh, this is, this is intimidating. <laughs> so, it's such so, a, yeah, I'm, I'm a weird dichotomy in that, in that way. Yeah, but it's not unusual, though, because I, I know quite a few writers that, you know, they have their face out there a lot. And at conferences, they are the people that tend to shy away. And it's really, as, as especially looking at where I was you know, a few years back before I was kind of a bit more um, in, in the game, like, it's very difficult to tell from that whether that's, like, leave me alone or, like, yeah. by all means to ask, I'm just a little bit. And it's knowing the difference, it, I don't think it's possible to do that. But other than just to, you know, try and give someone the option to say, like, thank you, but give me five. Yeah, I think I think I, I wish I had a sign that said, I'm happy if someone comes to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to, wow, Mark, Mark looks like he wants to be by himself over there. You could you could yeah. do that at a conference, just have an entire corner, which is like a big neon sign that says that, and just have all the authors sit there who are happy to be spoken to. And then in the other corner, yeah. leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need I need time out here. Yeah, yeah that yeah, would yeah. be that would be fantastic to have that so that people can go, oh, okay, he doesn't want to be approached. He yeah. wants to be approached. It's kind of like the 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 uh tags who we had at the superstars writing seminars we had the uh in terms of hugs and physical contact because some people don't want that i'm a hugger mm -hmm. I, I mean the green ribbon was like yeah hugs all the way baby you know uh whereas yellow was kind of like ah let's let's think about this let's talk about it and then the yeah. red was like high five from across the room is good for me <laughs> whatever <laughs> um and I wanted to, like uh, Damon Courtney and I were, were joking about this. I wanted to like wrap the green all over. Like I wanted to wrap myself <laughs> in the green ribbons. And, like, come on, I need hugs. It's been two years. I yeah, just anyone. a green mummy just so, walking along. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I think it would be interesting to have that talk to me or don't talk to me sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. What do you do on the days in which work is hard or in which you don't feel like doing the work? Do they do those days come for you or are you kind of in that bubble of gratitude with with where you're at? Uh, I love to, uh, I love to explore. I love to hike. I love to, uh, do that in particular. Not sure if you can hear the train. Uh, that was, that was a glorious uh, sound. <laughs> yeah. It's the, the train going to the mine here. Uh, <laughs> that was beautiful. I like that. In, in mining capital of the world here near Sudbury, Ontario. Nice. But, um, I love, uh, craft beer. Um, I'm a completionist too. So I check in my beers on uh, the untapped app and like very nerdy about it. Even on my first date with Liz, I was like taking out the phone, which is just a dumb thing to do going, I'm going to check in the beer. <laughs> it was. Like, oh my God, this is what you're in for if you, uh -huh. if you date. But um, I love that sort of stuff. And Liz and I love exploring on foot because for me, I, there's so much information and insights in the world around you, no matter where you go. I've spent a lot of time at the hospital lately uh, where my mom is. And, and I'm always, even though I'm there and I'm attending to things my mom needs, I'm paying attention to the stories of the people in the other rooms and, and wondering about the situations and even the staff and stuff like that, because everyone has a life outside of this role. And I'm constantly absorbing. <laughs> Go to a coffee shop. It doesn't matter. Driving on the highway, you see things. It's all fruit for stories. So mm. I'm never not writing and it never feels like work. So I, I, I feel so so blessed uh, i think of uh, one of my mentors who who never knew me um well he knew of me but he didn't know me but neil peart the the lyricist and drummer for rush and and he always wondered like how could anyone ever be bored mm -hmm. <laughs> when there's so much there's yeah. so much out there 
Uh, and I've sort of adapted that into my life, um, just thinking about, you know, there's always something to do or read or think about or whatever. Um, and even and even if I'm relaxing on a beach or, or whatever, I'm absorbing a great story or I'm just enjoying the landscape. And I know that that's coming in and will be used somewhere. It's yeah. all fruit for writing, my friends. <laughs> And we would be remiss, of course, as well, to go a little bit into your fiction, because, you know, as we were arranging this interview, you said something that uh, definitely caught my attention, um, which was after 10 years of telling authors to write in a series, you're now writing more in series. And I was looking through your portfolio and we've got your Canadian Werewolf series, which the first book was published in 2016, second one in 2020, third in 21, fourth in 22. So clearly there has been that ramp up from sort of where the book was into that series. What is it? that you've been telling people that you haven't been doing and why the turnaround to actually taking your own advice? Uh, yeah, I think it's part of my, uh, part of my um, uh, procrastination, but also my squirrel <laughs> aspect of, I'm going to write this, I'm going to write that. I had, I had four different book ones uh, published and with no book twos in sight. And, wow. and, and Canadian Werewolf, I started writing in 2006 for NaNoWriMo. I didn't finish it till 2014 and then uh, had it published in 2016. And then, and then it wasn't, um, yeah, that, that's been an amazing experience because, <clears throat> again, I've been telling writers, yeah, obviously the data's there. It's, 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 it's in front of you. You know, when you, you know, it was usually book three, after book three, consistently, tried publishing and, and indie publishing, I remember the early days of self-publishing it was Bella Andre and Barbara Freedy and Tina Folsom who were the rock stars who were just killing it with six and seven figure sales and they said it wasn't until after book three that things started to take hold and um I this character Michael Andrews the Canadian werewolf was in my head and I wanted to tell stories I wanted to share the stories but for some reason it wasn't until a, a short story I was asked to write for an anthology inspired me to return to his world and, and and just dig in a little bit deeper into what happened between books one and the planned book two I hadn't written. And uh, that's just been an amazing experience. Even the, the book five that Julie Strauss and I are uh, writing now is coming out in May. Um, we've got, you know, a little bit of time as we're getting our first pass back from our editor. And, and that's a romance novel, which is just, again, I'm, I'm doing something completely stupid, taking this urban fantasy action adventure and some of the readers have really loved the relationship between the two main characters. So I thought we've gotten to a story arc conclusion at a certain point uh, after book four. And I'm going to do a flashback to when they first met because they're now friends uh, who obviously have a sexual attraction one another, but aren't together because they were together once and they broke up. Maybe if you think about Seinfeld and Elaine on, on the old TV series, you knew they had dated once, but now they're friends. So yeah. the same sort of thing. So there's this tension, which is always fun. But uh, readers have wanted to know, well, how did they meet? And how did they fall in love? And, and so uh, I enlisted Julie, who's a phenomenal contemporary uh, women's fiction slash romance writer. And I've loved everything she's written. And I said, Julie, I can't tell a romance story. I don't know how I need your help. And I needed her to get into Gail's head because I worshipped Gail the way Michael did. And so I couldn't write her realistically. I, mm. I wrote her as like, she's a goddess and she can do that wrong. <laughs> and Julie had to come up with her faults and her flaws to make her more real. And I, uh, I honestly don't care if half my readers, I even had some readers that in the last couple of books, they go, ah, there's too much romance in here. I, I prefer the action. I'm like, this has no action whatsoever. It's pure <laughs> romance. However, the prologue and epilogue 
are, are in the timeline of now and they really are going to set up book six, which I already uh, have the title for and I have to get my cover designer to get a cover for and then I'll figure out writing it and I plan on releasing that in December. Mm. So um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's, it's, but it's been a wild ride and, and with the release of every new book, um, it seems to be uh, picking up um, almost like writing in a series is a good idea. I heard someone, some, some bald Canadian guy was telling me that and I never listened to him. <laughs> it is hard though to, to take your own advice sometimes. Cause I think I find that, you know, with the authors that I speak to, I get so used to saying the certain things, which I know are universal truths. And then you forget yeah. that you're not doing some of those things or like it slips from, from your radar for all because you're focusing on this thing over here. So it's not, yeah. it's not you know, unusual for myself, for example, just to be in that same situation. I'm like, you should be doing this. And then we'll come off the call and I'll be like, I should be doing that too. Yeah, I should be doing it too. I should listen to myself once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like, you know, when you've got industry experience and you've been at it, like it, it just makes sense <laughs> to, to follow those trends. Um, but it's interesting as well that, you know, with book five, you are taking that kind of, very quick sidestep in, in another direction how do you think that's going to impact the sort of read through of the series i know you said you kind of it, it seems to be more that you know there's a story that you want to tell um and if the readers like it they like it like is that kind of how you view all your books because you don't seem to be very sort of like financially led in that way if that makes sense yeah i uh i i, I it's about the passion for me if this is not something i'm actually passionate about and enjoying i don't the 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 market the market changes over time. The markets will want this and that and this and that. I've been in the industry since the early 90s. I know that things are hot and they're not and they're hot and they're not. There's no point in me chasing a trend. The only thing I can trace ch chase is the passion for the story. And if I'm not, in my opinion, if I'm not passionate about writing a kind of story that I think is going to be enjoyable, that I'm going to enjoy writing, then how can I ever expect anyone to enjoy reading it? So again, it's very non-analytical, uh, it's very non-business, uh, but I know that in the long run, it'll probably work because that's what story is, is it's universal and they're, the right people will, will find it. Um, marketing is a whole other thing, but the actual writing of it, even if it's not a success, even if, it's, if, if the sales are a flop, the process of creating it was a huge success and I've won already. So I win in either case. But if I spent time focusing on something and writing it just because I think it's going to be something good for the market, I've wasted my time. Uh, even, I mean, and if it flops, then I've wasted my time twice or whatever. At least I get a win out of this, even yeah. if the win is intrinsic. And that's good enough for me. Yeah, there's the um, Jim Carrey story about him watching his dad who wanted to pursue sort of comedy and entertainment not doing that to do the safe option of being an accountant so that he could raise his kids and then being made redundant from being an accountant. And Jim Carrey comes back to saying, I'd rather try and fail than to fail at the thing I never wanted to try out in the first place. Yeah, which I just, that's it exactly. Which Good I just old love. Canadian Jim Carrey. Yes. <laughs> and also that thing we were talking about a second ago about taking your own advice, like what you just said, that's, I just had one of those moments with myself. Um, so thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, I do, I do have a question actually from one of uh, my activated authors. Um, Ara asks, what is your view or opinion on debut authors with little to no established platform selling books direct from their website, taking marketing effects, Amazon ranks, et cetera, into account. I'm very interested in going wide, but also not sure of trying to sell from a website from the start. Um, 
I think I think if you train your readers early on, they get used to the fact. And and it, when readers know that you can earn more from a certain platform, unless they're completely married to, I have to read it on my Kindle. Although they can, BookFunnel makes that very easy. For example, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And and it, there's nothing wrong with having a small audience to start off with. I'd rather start off with one or two really passionate, engaged readers than a hundred freegans who just signed up for your newsletter, for example, to get a free book, but they don't care about who you are or your stories. Um, there's a huge difference in that. So I, <laughs> uh, Aaron Wright from the Wide for the Win group has the slogan, bank over rank. Yes, yes. So having a, a you know, uh, accounting for authors was a number one best-selling uh, pre-order on, on Amazon. Hey, okay, it's great. I got excited and uh, DF Hart and I were, yay, it's so, so fun. We're number one. That doesn't pay the bills, that that ego, right? That doesn't pay the bills. What pays the bills is money in my bank account that I get from the sales. So I would argue in the long run, uh, you know, in, in 10, 20 years, if you've trained more readers to purchase direct from you, who cares if that somehow impacted your ranking on, on, a, on a retailer that doesn't care about you? Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so... But again, I, I understand the you know being the five hundred thousandth book on on a major uh, platform. I have books there, trust me, so I know what it feels like. Um, that's yeah, that's a tough thing to deal with. But um, if I can make ninety five percent off of a direct sale rather than seventy or sixty percent, uh, I'm I'm good with that. Uh, I'm okay with that because in the long run, that one of them is gonna keep me in a house with food on my table and the other one's going to temporarily satisfy my ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I guess it comes back to what you said earlier about knowing your why, just whatever exactly. is your, yeah. is your goal money or is it rank? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, cause I'm conscious of time and I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm respectful of you needing to go, but I have a very, very selfish question um, from horror writer to horror writer, because I'm doing a lot of research into this for, reasons we won't go into um but i'm fascinated at the minute as to people's reasons as to why they write horror so when people say mark why do you write horror what is your what is your answer uh i'm scared of everything uh I, i'm a giant chicken and and honestly horror is therapy in many ways because it allows me to explore the things that i'm too scared to explore in real life so i i mean I, I'm, I'm at my mom's house and, and my partner, Liz, was asking because there's a bed in the basement that's a, a larger bed that I could fit better in than, than my old bed upstairs. And she goes, why aren't you sleeping in the basement? I said, well, because of the monsters. And I'm not joking. I'm actually scared. Uh, so a lot of my fiction will explore the things I'm too scared to go. When Liz and I go on ghost hunts, she wants to move away from the crowd and go explore the things and stuff. And I'm like, no, let's stay hidden in the crowd so that if the monsters come or the ghosts come, they can pick off some of the other people. I have a better chance of survival. So honestly, um, and, and I, can't, I can't help but wonder what if and explore the darkness. So for me, I'm just fascinated by it, but I'm also terrified by it. Uh, when I when I write late at night uh, and I'm so scared to go to bed and turn off the lights because of the things I just wrote about, I know I've done something really good. Because <laughs> if it affects me that way, it's probably going to affect someone else. Yeah, I, def I definitely find with my own horror that you get to a point of 
um getting used to your own horror and you're constantly looking for new ways to scare yourself and then you forget yeah. like the people that are just entering that sphere like how much it affects them because you just normalize yeah, exactly. it yeah you, have, you um, can it's like hot sauce right you're like no oh, yes. it's just frank's hot sauce it's whatever right uh-huh. it's just tabasco That's <laughs> <laughs> do you have um, a go-to horror recommendation if you could pick one horror book to recommend to someone who would what would that be uh i actually i think i think different seasons by stephen king only because the, the the majority that was the very first king i ever read and the majority of the horror is horror we can appreciate that most of it's not supernatural except for mm-hmm. you know breathing method maybe yeah. um most of it's the the horror of of men onto other men mm-hmm. uh and there's a lot of what if and exploration even the body right they're going to find a dead body that's really disturbing but it's also a coming of age yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, again, one of my favorite one of my favorite stories uh, that he's ever written. So that's usually a go-to for me. Nice. And final question before we wrap up for this interview, and there's, I'm I'm sure we'll have to get you back on because there's so much more I want to ask. Um, but the question I ask everyone who comes on the show is, why do you write? I can't not write. I can't. I, I'm a born storyteller. I I believe in my heart of hearts that I was born to, whether it's a dumb dad joke. Uh, whether it's you know sharing uh, inspiring things on stage or on a podcast or it's sharing stories in fiction Uh, I can't not do this amazing how many people that is the answer for (laughs) it's magic I love it okay so I will say a big thank you to Mark for joining me on the podcast today a massive thank you to you the listeners for tuning in oh I do remember one thing I do need to ask Mark where can people find out more about yourself and all that you're working on (laughs) Yeah, uh, everything can be found, all my social media links at marklesley.ca. Perfect. Try that again. A big thank you to you, Mark, for joining me on the podcast today. A massive thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in. And as always, if you're looking to level up your writing and activate your author career, head on over to activatedauthors.com to find out all about our community, our resources, and everything else we've got going on. One more time, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. Daniel, it was an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you so much for the honor. No worries. And I will see you all next week. Activate your energies.